Hi there, listeners. Just a reminder, all co-hosts of the Arbitration Station appear on it in their personal capacities. So please do not attribute statements to or take legal advice from what is said on this informal podcast. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick and I'm here with Jan for another episode. And welcome back, Jan. Hi, Brian. How are you? Good. How are you? Nice to see you back in action. Thank you. Nice to see you too. And and Brian, are you? Tell me, are you are you in Zagreb or are you in Istanbul? Uh, neither. Why do you ask? <laughs> so I'm asking because I think this coming week there's uh, there are two competing arbitration events. One is the 27th Croatian Arbitration Days, and the second one is Istanbul Arbitration Week. Ah. Uh, and I have friends who go to both of these, and they, they argue with each other which one's better. Oh, really? I spoke at... The Croatian one's in Zagreb, right? Yeah. Yeah. I spoke at that one. That was that was a good time. Um, oh, really? When, when did you... Oh, a attend? couple of years ago, right when I moved to London. But I, I've never been to Istanbul Arbitration Week, I have to say. That oh. sounds interesting. I've, n- I've never been um, to, to Istanbul Arbitration Week, but people from our office are going and it should be exciting. Yes. There's also, um, in October, there's Hong Kong Arbitration Week. Uh, that's, I believe, in, starts on the 6th of October. 16th? 6th? 16th of October uh, to the 20th. So, are, you, are you planning to go? No, unfortunately not. I'm grounded for the rest of the the rest of the autumn. But um, yeah, a lot going on. I guess everyone's back from summer and ready to kick off some arbitration conferencing. I was looking at the Hong Kong arbitration calendar, actually, the arbitration week calendar, and there seems to be two things that I've extracted as general trends, which mm. segue quite nicely into our segments today. Uh, one is there's a lot about procedural unfairness and efficiency mm-hmm. in arbitration. And another one is AI. Um, and that leads me to our topics today, which is <laughs> the first one is an interview that I have with Tim Robbins, who is an independent arbitrator, but also serves as a um, tribunal secretary. And he just published an article called The Efficiency Apex, Rethinking the Approach to Procedure in International Commercial Arbitration. And he goes through kind of the decades of debate addressing efficiency and arbitration. And he himself puts forward a new proposition called the mm-hmm. efficiency apex. Um, and I won't go into it in this introduction, but I'll leave it as a cliffhanger on his unique approach on how tribunals should um, kind of address efficiency in like a formulaic and even proposing a template of mm. what questions should be asked at the initial phase of the arbitration to pursue efficiency that sounds that sounds really interesting i am really looking forward to 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 hearing uh <clears throat> to editing it later but <laughs> yeah exactly. i uh, i wish joel was here because he would he would make a joke about tim robbins or, or shawshank redemption or something like that oh um, yeah <laughs> but since he's not here we don't have any we don't you have made any the joke dad jokes instead, that's for sure uh and then you're gonna lead our happy fun time Yes, yes. Brian, I, I don't know if you are too, but I'm a bit tired of hearing, of 
talking about AI and in general terms, how it's going to take over our industry and our lives and everything, mm-hmm. which which it will. And um, I'm really <laughs> excited about it. Uh, but I was thinking if we should offer our listeners some concrete, practical tips, how to use and harness this power in their everyday everyday lives. I think that's a great idea because as you say, we talked about it in our last one of our earlier episodes in general. Hmm. And then Saudia made the point saying the difference between future lawyers is not going to be that it will replace us. It's going to be do you it's going to differentiate lawyers that know how to use AI and those that do not. So hopefully you're going to provide us with a little groundwork on how to harness the energy. I like that. Harness the capability. Yes, yes. And that's not all. (laughs) As a bonus in this episode, we will have Simon Camilleri coming back. Uh, I don't know if you remember, he was our our expert on on the third episode uh, this year because the Law Commission has published its final report on the reform of the Arbitration Act 1996. And the final report includes draft legislation. So we'll have Simon to comment on that briefly. That's great, an update. We very rarely have that on this podcast. So I'm glad we're actually following up with... uh, We pose a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. So that's Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this will be good. This will be good. Looking forward to it. All right, well, let's start with Tim Robbins. All right, welcome back. We have another interview, a, a great interview. I'm excited to have. I've been wanting you on the podcast for a while, and now we have the perfect opportunity. We have Tim Robbins here with us. Hi, Tim. How are you? Great, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I've, uh, I've wanted to be on here for a long time as well. <laughs> so it's a mutually <laughs> beneficial relationship yes, yes. today. Um, Tim is an independent arbitrator with 15 years of experience in commercial disputes. Um, you're based in Hong Kong in The Hague, whatever that means. You, you <laughs> Try in the straddle, yes. Ping yes. pong between the two. Qualified in many jurisdictions, England, Wales, New York, and Ontario. Um, but you recently published in the Indian Journal of Ar- Arbitration Law, and you put it on your LinkedIn, and that's how I found you. And you published an article that you've cleverly marketed and entitled The Efficiency Apex rethinking the approach to procedure in international commercial arbitration. Now, the the word efficiency, and you actually raise this in the introduction, I'm, I'm happy you raise it in the introduction. Uh, you say, we've talked about this for a while. We've talked about efficiency for a while, and people have been introducing tools and guidelines and publications in order to kind of put their head around how we can make this more efficient. I think we can all agree it's inefficient, both cost and time-wise, um, and everyone's trying to get their head around how to solve this problem. Um, so you you address this, but you kind of take a new approach, and it comes up in the title itself. You've branded it as the efficiency apex, which I like, and I think our listeners would like to know, what does the efficiency apex mean to you, and what shall it mean to us moving forward? Yes, no, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate, as you said, this is a, a well-trodden topic. Um, and, uh, you know, but it remains the the forefront of our minds. You know, when I, I mentioned mm-hmm. White and Case um, and Queen Mary's studies, and it still costs us one of the top concerns of users and all that. And I, I, I finished the article with an awkward reference to a quote that's attributed to Einstein, basically saying, you know, the definition of insanity is 
doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And I, right. I think to a certain extent we talk about this all, and there's been some great, you know, progression in, in tools and things that are introduced in rules, um, you know, preliminary determination, expedited procedure and all, all sorts of other tools. But, but again, I find so often, uh, you know, I, um, you know, in addition to my matters as arbitrator now, you know, I've been tribunal secretary in almost 50 matters plus my council work before that. So I've seen a, a good amount and, so often we we talk about this, but then we get into an arbitration, you circulate a draft P1 and procedural timetable, and the parties come back with a full template. And once you kind of open that door and you set that framework, you 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 can't you can't step back from that. You can't right. you know it's 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 hard to reduce what has been to take back what has been given. Right. And so so my, my basic premise of the article is that we need to rethink our approach. Instead of starting the arbitration with that full framework. Um, and think, okay, well, what can we can remove and how can we be efficient? We kind of start with, okay, well, we have a request or uh, a notice of arbitration and the answer or the equivalent document. What else do we need? So I think starting from there and what else do we need? And, and very few disputes obviously would, would, you know, start and stop at that phase, nor would right. council want that. But, um, but I think really taking a, a hard approach and rethinking that. And so, Obviously, this is all good and well to talk about this in, in the abstract, but obviously the practical realities are it's much more difficult. Um, you know, you've the tribunal in particular is very limited information at the outset of an arbitration. And so the way I try to frame it is I try to find what are the objectives of an arbitration. So I discuss those and then basically say that the objective, you know, taking those consideration is to get to this efficiency apex, you know, this ideal spot of of where procedure and substance kind of um meet. So you know the the objectives of arbitration, as you will see in the article. One is you know it's to produce an enforceable reward that is correct as efficiently as possible. And um, I discuss you know I'm not sure at this point how in depth we want to go into those details. Um, but but basically the the key is to find the point where you know the efficient that the enforceability aspects. I, I think I highlight those from the New York Convention that that are most relevant for, for procedure. But then right. it's, it's the correct award that is the really the, the difficult one because that, it's not a requirement, but obviously it's it's something we should aspire to in arbitration. I think parties and the system will require us to to want to have correct awards to the extent that's possible um, for the integrity of arbitration. And so the focus is on the tribunal receiving enough information to determine the issues before it. That's right. Yes. And so uh, when that when that has been achieved, I, I argue the efficiency apex um, has has been reached, um, and arguably anything beyond that is superfluous and a waste of time and money and costs, and can actually be a detriment to the proceedings, as as is briefly addressed as well. We are a audio medium, so we can't uh, show the graph that you've helpfully prepared, but it looks like an economic curve of diminishing rate of return on in your investment, basically. That's kind of how I saw it. And you, yes. you've clarified. So, yeah. So let's let our listeners imagine that curve where it starts steep. So the more information you get, the more helpful uh, it is to the arbitrator. So you get a better return on your investment. And at some point, it starts to taper off. And that's kind of where you have highlighted this apex, right? Yes, yes. And I, I argue, so basically at the beginning of an arbitration, if, an, if a tribunal has no information, they have no chance of reaching the correct conclusion. But as you mm -hmm. see, from the chart, as they start to get information, the chance of them increased, reaching the correct conclusion increase exponentially. Mm -hmm. um, and instead, you know, it'll, it'll find that peak and then it'll slowly taper off, uh, as I argue. You know, every dispute obviously is different um, and that... The slope will be different in different arbitrations. It may increase less or more rapidly, um, but 
theoretically, all arbitrations would kind of fit into that that general matrix. In your article, you reference before you go into the efficiency matrix and provide that graph, you reference um, a what do you the iron trilogy? I think it's called iron triangle. Iron triangle. What what's the iron triangle? And and how does that compare to your efficiency apex? So the iron triangle is a Venn diagram that has been used in a few other articles. Um, Jennifer Kirby has a, a great article on efficiency that uses it. And so basically, it, the premise is that. Uh, you cannot have a good arbitration that is both fast and cheap. You know, you can have a fast arbitration that is good, but the Venn diagram posits that that will be expensive. You can have a good arbitration that is cheap, but that has to be slow. Um, mm-hmm. so the Venn diagram is, is sets that out, and I, I admit I, I don't, I don't quite agree with with the premise upon which it's based because it assumes that the more time and the more money that you spend, the better an arbitration will be. Mm-hmm. Now, to an extent that that is true, that's true up to a point, because as I argue in the article, once you reach a point where the tribunal has sufficient information to decide the issues before it, more time and more money do not make for a better arbitration. Yeah, so so that's why I had to do it more in chart form as opposed to Venn diagram, because I thought that was a bit of a simplistic approach. And (laughs) and Jennifer in her article, actually, she does confirm that she confirms many of the same theories that I have. And then, yeah, I think she wanted a, a good diagram that was an easy thing to communicate and whatnot. But uh, right. I wanted to take a step further. And uh, my chart is not a pretty chart. I will not be getting into graphic design school. Any- <laughs> <laughs> hope it gets across my, my concept. Well, as you said, so it's what we keep saying is sufficient information in order for the tribunal to make an award. And you're saying a correct award. Um so how how do we get there? How do you propose this is achieved? Uh, how as I as counsel or you as arbitrator, how do we know that we've reached enough information or provided enough information to reach this apex such that the award will be correct? So yes, that is you know, the difficulty of this. And so um, I think that the, the it's generally the tribunal's perspective that will be the most important in this. Obviously, the tribunal has the issues before it, and the tribunal itself knows. It's very difficult for counsel to necessarily know what a tribunal's mind is. So, And I discussed the, in the article as well, like, you know, correct, there are shades of correctness for different things. You know, some, some issues are very black and white. Some are more gray. There's issues of evaluation of evidence, discretion, and so forth. So Correctness is is not is is not black and white. It's not just necessarily right or wrong. Um, but I think from the tribunal's perspective, they have to be satisfied that they have enough information. Um, that is also going to take into consideration whether the parties are of the view that they have provided enough information to the tribunal as well. So where a procedure has been set out and one side thinks that it's not been able to fully flesh out its its reasoning or arguments or or whatnot, you know, at the appropriate time, that party should raise that and say. I do not think the current procedure allows me to present my case. And then of course the tribunal will take that in consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I think quite, and be quite delicate in those circumstances. I think in most cases, I, I don't think most counsel is out there just to you know, derail proceedings and unnecessarily delay. Counsel are just trying to protect themselves and their clients and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, put in every angle that they can, because as I said, you know, parties don't always know exactly what a tribunal, where a tribunal's mind is on particular issues. So they want to, you know, throw in the kitchen sink and the bathtub and, you know, the washer and dryer and whatever else as well. (laughs) I mean, I think, 
Although sometimes if you are a keen listener when you're in even a procedural conference about what the issues are and and even if you're in an ICC arbitration where you have the terms of reference and and although the tribunal's not necessarily going to give any input on that at that stage you can glean some sort of indication on where the tribunal is mostly focused on or uh, so I, I don't I don't think we're operating in a vacuum here where we just are throwing documents at the tribunal and then out pops an award and we don't know where where that decision came from right no, and of course, people do their homework on both their corporate appointments as right. well as chairs and so forth. And so, yes, they're, they're yeah, not operating in a vacuum. That is true. What what you talk about in the article is that the tribunal, we have this due process paranoia thing, and let's put that to the side because it's kind of a term that's thrown around a lot. But you say that there's a lot of things that the tribunal can do at the outset to abandon this default procedure and to implement maybe a a different starting point to allow for some efficiencies in in the arbitration for example limiting submissions or not having x or not having 10 experts or limiting the number of experts or no experts at all um dispel it or getting rid of a hearing in person you know we have we have all these things that um a tribunal has in its toolbox in order to achieve this efficiency and the parties themselves can fight it um, and, but what can the tribunal do in response to that? Um, so you have, you have the tribunal coming, let's say they, you know, adopt your new approach and, and try to implement some sort of efficient procedure. And then the parties come with the kitchen sink approach. Um, how can the tribunal kind of incentivize against that? Or how can they kind of keep reinserting themselves to ensure that the procedure just doesn't go back to the default. Um, are you saying that the fight can only happen at stage one? And then once that fight's over, then all all bets are off? Or can the tribunal continue to take steps and measures to, to try and veer into this efficiency apex? Well, I think the key is that there's some heavy lifting that needs to be done at the beginning. Um, I think a lot of the time, there's not really much consideration. You know, a tribunal will review the documents when they get them, but I don't think they really dive into it at that point with a view to trying to refine and structure the proceedings as as efficiently as possible for that arbitration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think so. As I said, at the beginning, the, the focus should very much be it's going to take a bit of a hands-on approach by both the tribunal and the parties, because sometimes the parties as well, respondents may not have been fully aware of many of the facts of, of the dispute by that point, and that, you know, just a short time frame for their initial uh, uh, documents to go in. Um, but I think when you when you look at procedure, I think tribunals need to have a bit more confidence. You know, we talked about the due process paranoia, but when you think about it, um, Parties agree to arbitration, this is a consensual process, where they agree on procedure, that will govern, but where they don't agree on procedure, they generally have agreed to a set of arbitration rules or perhaps a model law jurisdiction, and within those rules is an agreement to the tribunal having discretion to run the proceedings as they deem appropriate. So the parties have basically agreed that the tribunal has full discretion to run the proceedings as they see appropriate. Um, And so, as I said, heavy lifting needs to be done at the outset. Um, and we can discuss kind of the, the various issues that are listed in the PP, the uh, preliminary procedural assessment that, that I uh, suggest. Um, if there's insufficient information at that time that's available to the parties in the tribunal, you don't need to set a full set of procedural, um, you know, in, in a couple of my recent matters, uh, we've had a, you know, I've, I've sent the PPA to the parties, uh, we've gotten their feedback, I've drafted a, you know, kind of preliminary directions, we've discussed it at the hearing, and we've then issued 
um, a part, you know, part part of the procedural timetable. And we're going to revisit that after this initial one um, mm-hmm. to see if document production is required or to see whether experts are required. Um, as I said, you know, once once the doors have been opened, once you've given that procedure, it's very hard to to retract. And I have a, I don't know if it's a terrible or awkward analogy of, of a gaseous substance in a box. And so the box is the procedure and the gas is the party submissions. Um, a certain amount of gas is required. So a certain amount of submissions is required for the tribunal, but the bigger the box gets, that gas will grow and it will grow to fill the box just the way that I think that party's submissions, you know, without a page limit, without any restrictions on number of witnesses or experts or on document production, uh, they will naturally grow beyond what is probably required. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the takeaway from this is that start small, you know, right. be conservative. Uh, if and when a party says this is not sufficient, you know, they should know that at the time of filing those submissions, you know, if if 50 pages is not enough, they should legitimately say to the tribunal why that is not enough. Um, and it can be dealt with at that time. Um, I, yeah, think that- I think I think that's a good point because, and, and you, ra- you do raise this in the article that's saying, from the tribunal's perspective, there is no harm in you setting tight deadlines and you setting these limitations and then dealing with it if that becomes unusable. And from the council side, you agree as much as you can in the beginning based on what you know of the case. And if you need anything more, then you can apply for that. Um, I had a recent case where um, the adjudicator said, I don't see a need for that type of expert, even though this party has requested that type of expert. Let's proceed on the basis that you don't need that expert. And if it comes up later on that you do need that expert, then you can apply to to include that. Um, yeah. so, and then what if, what if the party like, you know, so I've also had as counsel where you, um, you on your side are very interested in efficient arbitration, your client wants an award immediately, because they want to get paid, Um, they're bankrupt. And the other side says, No, 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 I want a full chance to prepare my case. I want a longer timetable. I want fuller submissions. I want, you know, a a staggered procedure, all all of these things that are going to cause a delay in the process. Um, What you say in the article that something like adverse costs um, have been used to to prevent counsel from doing that, or do you think adverse costs is a useful tool, um, and is it used often, and is it effective? So, I think it works well as a punitive measure. Um, at the end of an arbitration, obviously, you have the benefit of hindsight, and you know the party that either should have. Uh, conceded certain points or that clearly had a bad case on the merits and was just using this for delay that it can be used you know quite quite effectively and there needs to be some level of recourse um mm-hmm. you know to, to punish the you know party that took advantage of the process and to reward the party that had a valid claim or valid defense um that said i don't think it actually has that much of a deterring effect on the choices council make um as far as efficiency and so forth okay. um it might be lingering in the background of their thoughts, but again, I think they, you know, whatever their motivations are, whether they think they have, you know, a legitimate claim or legitimate defense, whether delay is kind of, you know, the, it's in their interest to do so, whether they think that they have a a good way to resist enforcement, you know, they might have other motivations, but I, I don't, I don't think that costs, you know, the very fact that we're still talking about this and adverse costs uh, awards are, are very common in arbitration. Mm-hmm. The fact that 
talking about cost as an issue means that it's not a sufficient deterrent. I think it's a, a useful tool and a good tool um, mm-hmm. and, and should continue to be applied, but it's it's not sufficient in my mind, which is which is, you know, played out in, in the evidence. Yeah. I want to pick up on a point you said earlier about you chose the arbitrator so that and the arbitrator, according to the rules, has the discretion to determine the procedure. Um, I liked that in the article because it does kind of put the onus on the council saying, okay, look at the rules. In the rules, the tribunal has discretion to determine the procedure. Who determines the tribunal? You do. Uh, So you should leave it up to them to make these decisions. So how do you see the interplay of party autonomy and this um, adjustments to the procedure? So I think in most cases, where parties agree that autonomy, you know, rarely I think would a tribunal override party agreement unless it's right. outrageous, you know, the three years till, you know, to a hearing and so forth. Um, yeah, very rare circumstances where a tribunal would override party agreement. However, where the parties disagree, which they often do on matters of procedure, it's up the tribunal to weigh both sides and come to an appropriate decision. And so I discuss as well, one of the um, principles for enforcement um, is equality of treatment of the parties. But I also discuss that equality doesn't just mean saying, okay, one side wants three months, one side wants six months, so we're doing four and a half months. Mm -hmm. That is not the, the best way to approach it. It's the easy way to approach this, obviously, but not all while the party should be treated equally, not all procedural proposals are created equally. Right. So it is up to the tribunal to really try to, as again, it's time intensive a bit, but you know, take the time to actually evaluate each side's proposal, see what is most efficient, see why one side has said that they can or cannot do a certain length of proceeding or why a certain length of um, uh, limit on pages is appropriate or why they need, you know, you know, 10 witnesses or so forth you know you, you you again it's not done in a vacuum there will be information but mm-hmm. you don't just split the baby and and just go middle ground between the parties um i think that's a bit of a cop-out i'm gonna raise a it's not a hypothetical really but basically something that is a concern probably on both sides so you have the situation where council both council want a particularly longer procedure just because that's what they're used to and they're gonna adopt this deep what you call the default starting point um and then the tribunal decides, you know what, I'm going to pursue this efficiency principle. I want a shorter timeline. I don't want any of this. I like this is what I want. This is what I think I need in order to decide the case. So they take this aggressive approach, not necessarily overruling the party's agreement, but just kind of really having a heavy hand and making sure the procedure is tight. Um, do you think that there's any concerns that a tribunal should have in making this, you know, short procedure or having all of these limitations on the procedure to make it efficient? Or do you think that they should feel confident that they can make these decisions? Basically, what what would happen? So I think that a tribunal obviously needs to take these the views of the parties into serious consideration. Obviously, Uh, if parties have agreed on this, as I said, you know, the best I think a tribunal can really do is, you know, push back on the parties have a CMC discuss with them and say that, you know, I really don't think this is appropriate for, you know, this, this dispute, try to push them on that. If you, if the parties agree and are like put their feet down, it's really yes. tribunal because if the procedure was not held in accordance with the parties, you know, article five of the New York convention touches on that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it could be argued that, okay, great. I objected to this. I did not agree. The tribunal went ahead. I put down my red flag and I'm going to lean on that later. So I think that the tribunal does have an obligation to, it happens often in arbitrations where either some parties are less informed about arbitral procedure or have different considerations in mind. Um, I think the tribunal not only has a job to kind of yes arbitrate the dispute, govern the proceedings, but also to 
to coach and, and educate the parties where they might not appreciate the nature of the flexibility of the proceedings mm-hmm. of, of, you know, of, of potential consequences of, of having these longer proceedings, you know, cost adverse cost awards and so much. So I think the tribunal has an obligation to where they can educate the parties and help them come to a more reasonable agreement. Um, but again, you know, the default is if the parties have agreed and the tribunal can't budge them, I think it's quite difficult for, for yeah. inappropriate for a tribunal to overrule that. So let's get into the part of the article, which is where you kind of push the, take a step forward and how we can address these efficiencies. And you've already raised it um, briefly, which is this preliminary procedural assessment or what you call the PPA. So let us, tell us what that is, what it includes and and how you think it's going to have an effect. Um, so basically the PPA is something that I have started sending out at the outset of my arbitrations. And so it'll be a different, it'll be a different form every time that you use it. Okay. Uh, you know, should first look at, you know, review the documents that are on foot, um, and then come up with a list of questions that you think are appropriate. Um, so, you know, the, see whether there's any issues that early determination will be appropriate for, um, whether bifurcation of jurisdiction merits or quantum, um, uh, you know the length of submissions, the number of rounds, the minimum required time required between them, um, and and basically, you know, the again, as I said, it's not going to temp- not a template form. Basically, the tribunal will base these questions on a reading of the. You know, it might be clear that there's no issues that would be suitable for preliminary determination, mm-hmm. um, or so forth. So I think yeah, it's important the tribunal turns their mind to to have an appropriate list of questions that gets sent to the parties. Both of them are encouraged to fill it out. I don't say that it's mandatory, but I encourage the parties to be as fulsome in the responses as possible because yeah, the more information they provide, um, the more the more they can kind of think about what is actually required. I think the, the, the more benefit there will be to the efficiency of the proceedings. Once the parties give their feedback on that, um, I would then prepare some draft procedural directions, um, including a procedural timetable based on the party's feedback. Okay. Um, and then I would schedule a case management conference to discuss that um, in case there's anything uh, that the parties have concerns about, anything they don't understand, um, and and kind of help talk them through some of the proposals I might have for efficiency if, if, if they're, they're somewhat doubtful about how those might apply in practice. And again, as I said, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing if you don't fix the full uh, timetable at the beginning. I think, as you said, where there's uncertainty as to whether or not expert evidence is required, unclear um, whether document production will be, will be helpful or useful in this case, um, you know, those are things that can be, can be put off to a future date. And it's not, you know, a, a short CMC to, you know, you get the party's views in an email, you have a short CMC to address these things. That's not a huge time expenditure mm-hmm. if you can avert a lot of wastage for unnecessary steps and unnecessary submissions and so forth. So how putting this, you know, question, let's say the question of bifurcation, putting that question at an early stage versus just getting an application for bifurcation application for bifurcation later on in the procedure, how will getting that PPA in the beginning of the procedure make it more efficient than just reacting to a request for bifurcation later on? Do you see what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So, well, once again, if you've already set a full procedure, um, again, it's hard to, A, it's hard to take away what's been given, but also um, an application later on for bifurcation throws everything that's been set into kind of limbo as well. And so dealing with those at the outset um, and preparing for it in, in kind of more orderly, logical fashion 
it was going to be far more efficient than if, you know, after, after the statement of defense, suddenly there's an application for bifurcation. You know, mm-hmm. um, I feel that, uh, and especially if it's granted, because then you, know, you have statement of claim and statement of defense that perhaps were unnecessary if you're going to only deal with certain of those issues in, in a first phase. Um, so again, I think, I think the more time you can spend, it'll be a bit more front heavy as far as the work goes. Um, but nothing, I don't think anything too onerous on either parties of the tribunal, you know, it behooves us all to know the case as well as we can from the outset, um, so that we can kind of, you know, structure the proceedings appropriately. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, years ago, I assisted on a matters tribunal secretary where, you know, and dutifully, of course, I keep my mouth closed and I, (laughs) of course, and there's an application for bifurcation early on, um, for jurisdiction and claimant argued that the merits and the jurisdiction issues were too intertwined, you know, kind of classic um, objection to that. And the tribunal agreed. Um, and I think the tribunal probably just agreed out of default, you know, if the claimant objects to bifurcation, you know, or it's, it's going to be too messy to really delve into it. Mm. Then we went through the full proceedings, um, you know, complex valuation issues for, you know, valuations of shares in, uh, in businesses across different countries, you know, lots of expert evidence and all that full hearing and about 30 seconds into tribunal deliberations, just basically, well, very clearly we have no jurisdiction. Right. So if I think, and, you know, and the, the tribunal that of course, very experienced um, and perhaps a bit more old school as well. You know, I, th- I think there is a bit of uh, the old school generation might be a bit more hands-off is the wrong approach. I think, um, um, and not, not to say everyone in a certain age group is of the old generation. I know many arbitrators who are older than me, who actually take quite a hands-on efficient approach, but I think this tribunal had engaged a bit better at that time. Mm. And if they didn't want to do it on jurisdiction, you should have at least done it on quantum because there's several hundred thousand dollars spent between the expert reports and most of the document production in that as well, which was not a small process was about quantum as well. So there was a huge, and it was just irrelevant for the tribunal's findings in the end, you know, no discussion of quantum whatsoever because it was just, you know, dead on arrival. Yeah. Uh, so hence why I think, you know, getting these, you know, really engaging with them at the beginning and perhaps actually if the tribunal was more engaged themselves and brought up the issue themselves, they would have actually considered the issue more than, again, it was just brought up by a party as an application, you know, a couple months in. Uh, and perhaps, yeah, and, and I think as a result, the tribunal didn't necessarily engage because it wasn't something that they themselves had focused on, um, and it was just kind of easy for them to dismiss because you know the other side objected. Right. No, I mean obviously that it takes a, a bit of engagement from the tribunal. I, I had a case recently that's now settled, thank goodness. With but it had to deal with uh, so a suite of contracts, some of which did not even fall, did not even have an arbitration clause, and we and obviously there was an ad- objection to jurisdiction there, and they decided to that they would decide jurisdiction at the end. And it was like, you know, some of these really glaring issues that could actually be decided. So obviously it takes some engagement. I, at, to to kind of wrap this up, I would think, and I would hope that at some point you do publish a template because uh, for the PPA, because I think, and it could be a checklist and, you know, basically all the things that you can consider and then, then that can be adapted. Um, so maybe like things to think about. I think, Maybe in your next article, you can uh, have a template PPA that people could use. I, you know, I, obviously there will be more articles on efficiency. I, I have not <laughs> the subject, and I, I actually, I have some more radical procedural proposals that I've, I've left out of this article. Um, that uh, I've workshopped uh, a bit, and I <laughs> some ready for the light of day. Um, 
But I think we do need to push ourselves on this. And we do need, to, as I said, you know, doing the same thing over and over again has not done us any favors. Um, and we do need to really think about how to reverse. I, of course, am not ignorant. This is not going to be a panacea for all issues and suddenly solve, you know, it's, there will yeah. be efficiencies in every arbitration. One cannot see all avenues and, you know, the benefit of hindsight, you know, you can think, oh, well, of course that was unnecessary, or of course we should have done that, mm -hmm. you know, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. <laughs> and no, I, I definitely. Harder about how we approach this. Just take some checking in every now and again. Yes. Well, congratulations on the article and thank you for joining us today. It's great no, to hear. Thank you. It was absolutely fantastic talking to you and thank you for um, uh, taking interest in my article. I'm here with Simon Camilleri. Uh, hi, Simon. Uh, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me back, Jan. It was a pleasant surprise. We had you, for the listeners, we had you on episode three called Challenge Paranoia. Um, but you, your segment was about the English Arbitration Act of 1966. Could you remind us what um, it was about and in what context do you bring updates? Yeah, sure. So um, the Arbitration Act... Uh, 1996 had its, I suppose, 25th birthday a few years ago. Mm. Um, and it has gone through a process via the Law Commission of consultation for the purposes of possible reform. Mm. So the previous podcast discussed an earlier stage in the process mm -hmm. where the Law Commission was still consulting um, and getting views on its proposal. And I suppose what we're going to talk about today mm -hmm. is the Law Commission's final report, where they set out their conclusions as to reform, and they set out proposed legislation in support of those conclusions. So that's where we are now. Um, yes. For our international listeners, we, we should mention that this this uh, process, this act, pertains only to England and Wales. Is that correct? Yes. So so most of this applies to uh, English-seated mm -hmm. uh, arbitrations, the seat being something arbitration practitioners will be familiar with, obviously. Uh, there are provisions that apply to any arbitration, whether it's seated in England or, 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 or Wales, indeed, or, or not. Uh, but it, yes, it's a primarily... I suppose you could call it English-centric act. Great. I might have a, 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 a silly question for you. You know Oscars, um, the Academy Awards? Yes. I, so I always wondered uh, who sits on the, who's the Academy? Who, who are the people who choose uh, what film uh, and uh, actors and actors win? So I was, uh, I was curious, do you know, so who sits um, at the Law Commission? Who's the commission? Do we know? Oh, thank God. I thought you were going to ask me who sits on the uh, the Oscars committee, which I don't know the answer I, I to. still don't know. <laughs> no, no, nobody does. Um, it, in terms of the Law Commission, um, it, it's usually chaired by somebody important and then supported by a series of other important lawyers with expertise in the area that um uh is being 
consulted on. Mm -hmm. In this case, the Law Commission uh, was chaired by uh, the Right Honourable Lord Justice Green, which, as his name suggests, means he's a Court mm -hmm. of Appeal judge. Uh, and then there were various other people involved in the uh, in the process of preparing the report. So that is a hopefully short and comprehensive answer to your question. Mm -hmm. And and we should remind our listeners that the report, the final report, is based on um, feedback from the from the English arbitration community. Yeah. So so various people um, have commented on on uh, uh, the proposals, mm -hmm. whether through the form of academic articles or mm -hmm. by way of responding to the consultation directly. So I think Boy Schiller, um, as far as I remember, is, was one of the consultees, but I might be wrong. Um, and, um, uh, 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 well, various law firms mm -hmm. were, I think is probably the best way of putting it. I, th I think um, that's and, correct, yeah. Yes, yeah. So so that, that's, that's, it's involved the legal community uh, very heavily, for sure. And, and actually, when we when we talk about where they've ended up um, in their proposals, that mm -hmm. demonstrates how involved the legal community has been um, in the the approach and continues to be. Everyone's talking about these proposals at the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, I've uh, I haven't looked into them in depth, but I've seen loads of statuses on LinkedIn and posts um, about it. Could you give us a, a brief roadmap of um, the updates that you chose to talk about for us today? So do you want to know about the, the final report or how we've got oh, there? Uh, the, the final report. Sure. Okay. So the final report, um, there's nothing, I suppose, eye-opening in it. It, it. it touches on the areas that I think everyone thought it would uh, and the conclusions I mean, if I was to sum up the arbitrate the 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 final report, it's mm -hmm. it's sort of light touch reform as opposed to wholesale reform. Mm -hmm. And I'll just go through the the sort of the big issues and then very briefly talk about the smaller issues um, that that have come up. Not small, smaller in terms of um, importance, but just in mm -hmm. the way that they've been addressed in the report. So probably the biggest um, topic and the one that was most discussed is section 67 uh, of the arbitration act relating to jurisdictional challenges there was a lot of discussion about this mm -hmm. uh, the law commission had originally proposed reforming section 67 in a very sort of heavy way mm. where they've come out which is consistent with their position in their second consultation uh, uh, report um, is that they don't think section 67 itself needs to be reformed what they propose is that rules of court be introduced that reflect their view that in the ordinary case, there should not be a full rehearing of evidence where there is a jurisdictional challenge mm -hmm. if a party participated in the proceedings and was able to make a jurisdictional challenge there. So what they're trying to do is to say, look, in the ordinary course, um, we don't want full rehearings. What mm -hmm. we want is um, um, uh, a review. Um, that, of course, doesn't apply if the party didn't participate in the proceedings. Then you would have a full hearing because there is no rehearing. Mm -hmm. um, that is light touch. In terms mm -hmm. of where that takes us, um, 
it's it's actually it's quite interesting that we're having this discussion today um uh, the 10th of october um because uh, the day before uh, mm -hmm. the 9th of october um uh, uh, mrs justice cockerill who was formerly the sort of chief judge of the commercial court uh, gave her view on some of these proposals uh, including section 67 by reference to the statistics and she made the point that there aren't that many jurisdictional challenges in mm. the round and the courts in a way have been perfectly capable of managing uh, judicial uh, jurisdictional challenges where they come up um and that the courts shouldn't be overly constrained in continuing to do that job now i think actually the approach of of introducing rules of court mm. allows that level of flexibility because mm. you're not going to have a, a strict statutory rule that says no rehearings um you have rules of court that say no rehearings unless in the interests of justice so that's mm. section 67 the next big one as it were um is the introduction of a rule that says that the arbitration agreement um, the governing law of the arbitration agreement will either be that expressly chosen by the parties or it will be the law of the seat. Right. Now, that is a move away from the current law under Enker and Chubb, mm -hmm. which placed far more reliance on the law of the underlying agreement, the matrix contract. Um, the, the, the Law Commission's proposal also appears to remove the ability to say that there is an implied choice of law under the arbitration uh, agreement. That is perhaps a little bit more surprising, but mm -hmm. the idea of the proposal is to try and streamline things, to to uh, avoid big arguments over what the, mm -hmm. the governing law is. We will see whether that is successful um, in practice, but that is the aim. Uh, and Jerome, was this... Sorry, was this... Yeah, sure. Um, the topic of your paper that you talked about last time you were here in, in episode three, did the Law Commission follow your uh, suggestions? Uh, no, not really. But but, not really. Um, <laughs> but I am cited in the Law Commission report, oh, so uh, I'll, I'll plug that if I can. Um, yes, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but no, no, they didn't. Fool on them. Anyway, but but the 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 um, I suppose one important point to highlight is that the um, the rule once it's introduced will be prospective, not retrospective. Mm -hmm. So it will only apply to arbitration agreements that are entered into, um, you know, after the mm -hmm. act comes into into force. Um, there there are some who have criticised that on the basis that you're having a dual regime, and it would have made more sense to just say. Um, once the act comes into force, all arbitration agreements, once they're considered by the courts or whatever, um, this this new rule applies to them. Um, I, there are arguments either way, but I think this probably isn't the right forum for for addressing them. Um, the the next uh, 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 I suppose big issue um, is that of arbitrator disclosures. Um, I suppose your listeners will be familiar with the decision of the Supreme Court in Halliburton and Chubb, mm -hmm. which established that there is a common law rule um, or made clear that there is a common law rule 
that an arbitrator has a duty of disclosure um, uh, when it comes to things that might affect his or her impartiality. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, Law Commission's proposal is to codify that um, common law duty of disclosure to make it a statutory duty of disclosure. Uh, that is, I think, eminently sensible. Mm. The rule is there, and it's now just being put into a statutory form. Mm -hmm. um, it it will probably highlight the um, uh, independence and impartiality that is expected of arbitrators in, in English seated proceedings, uh, and and will once again highlight um, how uh, good, I suppose, in a, a jurisdiction England is for. Mm the fair resolution of disputes by arbitration. Mm -hmm. So that is a certainly a positive. Um, now, turning to the next uh, 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 significant issue, I suppose, um, summary disposal. Right. I was going to, I was going to ask you uh, yes. about that because on this episode, we also earlier, Brian interviewed Tim Robbins and they talked about, how to make arbitration um process more efficient yes and they they mentioned they mentioned early dismissal mechanisms yes well, well hopefully i won't um contradict ed or, or anything that that was said previously but but um starting with the provision the approach the law commission has taken what they are saying in short is that there should be a specific provision Mm -hmm. in the arbitration act that that says that summary disposal uh uh proceedings are uh available in arbitration mm -hmm. i mean that's obviously subject to the choice of the parties and so on um and that that uh, uh process but that's nothing yes. new right that they're also well that's that's why i say it's it's uh, uh perhaps a slightly um you might say it's a bit of a distraction because mm. the tribunals in England and generally across the world, particularly under arbitral institutional rules, but, but also more generally, if you look at the provisions of the Arbitration Act itself, for example, have very, very broad powers. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt, I think, really, if if, mm. if we're sort of not kidding ourselves, that, that tribunals have had the power summarily to dismiss proceedings. Mm -hmm. Um you know, the, now the LCIA uh, rules have a an early determination provision in them as well. So you also have a, an express footing in one of the, you know, mm. biggest sets of rules. And I don't think it's the only one. So so it could be said, well, was this really necessary? Mm -hmm. What it proposes to do, I suppose, is try and bolster the view of arbitrators so they they don't suffer from... Um, a due process paranoia, I think it's sometimes <laughs> called. I think I think this was mentioned. Uh, uh, this was mentioned also on the interview. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me, but 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 arguably, I mean, having a an express rule um, isn't really going to fix mm. due process paranoia because mm. saying you can do this is not equivalent to saying you will do this. Mm. Um, and I think, at least in my experience, arbitrators still have due process paranoia, even though, mm. for example, in England, um, Section 68 challenges on the basis of procedural irre irregularity mm. are very, very unlikely to succeed. Mm. 
So even if an arbitrator does something that, you know, might be considered crazy in the context of court proceedings, mm -hmm. it, there's a very good chance you won't succeed on a challenge. So that's why I say, I mean, this provision is perhaps being blown a little bit out of proportion. Mm. Um, uh, one area where it does make uh, or, or break real ground, I suppose, is by trying to impose a standard. So mm. for, for such challenges. So what what the the law commission says is that um if you're going to make a an, an application summarily to dismiss arbitration proceedings the test that will be applied to determine whether that application should should um succeed is the no real prospect of success right. uh, test uh not manifestly without merit which is used mm. in certain arbitration rules yes um and that means that the arbitrators in England will have the full sort of panoply of, of English mm. court decisions that have considered what those words mean over decades. Mm. Um, so maybe maybe that's a good thing. Some people think it's not. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I leave the listener to determine that for themselves. Um, now, the last, uh, 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 I, I think, perhaps uh, a big or important issue is is um section 44 of the arbitration act now that that deals with the court's powers to do things in support of arbitration um what the law commission had previously concluded was that section 44 already applied to third parties um that was the big debate they said look people have said maybe there's uncertainty as to whether and the courts have said maybe there's uncertainty as to whether section 44 applies to third parties people who aren't parties to an arbitration agreement um and the law commission said look if you if you look at these provisions practically they do apply to third parties but what they've done is propose that section 44 be clarified so that it's clear that it applies to third parties that seems sensible what, what, what they're saying is we're not changing the law we're just making it clearer and sometimes that's that's a good thing but that clarity comes um with an added uh importance uh point which is that the section 44 will also make clear that if a third party um appeals um a section 44 order mm -hmm. against them for example compelling them uh not to deal with property or to turn over documents or whatever it might be they can appeal in the ordinary way they're not subject to the restrictions that apply to a party um under section 44 or under various provisions of the arbitration act that makes a lot of sense um mm. they're still third parties so that's good i think now just touching very briefly on some of the um uh sort of smaller issues smaller because the law commission basically didn't really decide to address them right um a whistle stop tour of these confidentiality one of the debates that's raged for years i think mm. is everyone sort of knows that 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 um arbitrations in england are confidential as an implied duty of confidentiality uh, and so on i mean it's part of the the uh makeup of arbitration in england and the Ar the law commission was asked whether there should now be an express duty and they said no we're not going to touch this we don't think it's right to do so and we should let the common law develop as it as it as mm -hmm. it does and as it continues to makes a lot of sense 
there might be certain types of arbitrations where there shouldn't be a duty of confidentiality, for example, involving public bodies. Hmm. You know, one might say that people have different views. Hmm. Arbitral rules very often nowadays have their own uh, uh, um, uh, guidance, if not specific provisions relating to confidentiality. Again, the LCIA rules very clear on that. So it makes sense to just leave it be. Um, Another one was Section 69. Section 69 is the provision of the Arbitration Act that deals with appeals on a point of law. Um, There was a view that that provision should be removed. um, And the Law Commission, I think, originally suggested something along those lines. Um, That was not reacted to very well amongst the, um, the legal community. And so Section 69 is saying in place, Again, it kind of makes sense. It's quite hard to bring a Section 69 appeal. There are lots of arbitral rules that don't uh, allow you to bring appeals on a point of law. Mm. And where those uh, uh, rules, um, such as the NMAA terms, for example, uh, don't provide for um, or don't exclude the power, it could be said that they envisioned that it would be possible. So leaving things as they are in that sense seems to make sense. Um, An area that perhaps was viewed as slightly more controversial is the issue of discrimination in arbitration. So there was a suggestion that the Arbitration Act should contain provisions that, um, I suppose, import bits all of the the Equality Act uh, 2010 into Mm -hmm. arbitration so that the appointment of arbitrators is subject to that act. that isn't where the law commission has gone that's not because they don't consider discrimination to be an important or unimportant issue mm-hmm. it's that they just don't think that they're the right people to deal with it and and you might have some sympathy with that view because the issue of discrimination raises uh, um, a number of issues that are perhaps not for the arbitral community or arbitral lawyers to look at but for you know government to look at and so on so perhaps that was sensible. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, um, the issue of trusts. This is a, a strange one. Um, there was, I think, I think a throwaway comment in one of the Law Commission's reports where they said, uh, you know, uh, uh, an arbitration agreement in a trust deed isn't really an arbitration agreement, and it's questionable whether that arbitration agreement would actually do anything. Mm. Uh, that seems to suggest that... Um, you can't arbitrate trust disputes. Um, there are lots of technical reasons why that might be correct on an interpretation of the Arbitration Act, but it's quite quite difficult, I think, in some ways, because trust disputes, you can imagine, especially you know, with big families, wealthy families, they might want the privacy of arbitration mm-hmm. to deal with their, their assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is probably going to end up being the subject of its own reform proposals Hmm. um just to note that you know there are countries most notably the bahamas where they introduced specific reforms to deal with this issue Hmm. making clear that a arbitration agreement in a trustee is binding so that might be something to look out for Mm -hmm. and to look forward to and we can all put in our consultation responses and uh, uh complain about things for another few months before another report comes out 
but I think that's uh, that's basically it. Yeah, and I, I I don't know whether whether you wanted me to to address anything else, but um, those are the key points. I think. Thank you so much, Simon, for your insightful updates and um who knows um maybe there will be another major update and for that we'll be sure to call you back oh that's uh very much appreciated thank you and um, hopefully somebody somewhere finds this useful Brian, I I have a confession to make. I'm one of these AI enthusiasts who 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 love talking about our bright future with AI, and um, <laughs> which makes me very popular um, uh, at work during coffee breaks. Uh, but oh, it sounds riveting. <laughs> I know, I know. And um, what? So, what do you think? Where do you stand? I, I I embrace it as you. I'm optimistic. Um, I have to say that I have a limited knowledge of it, but I am using it. I use it. I would say three times a week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So not, but but at a very basic level. But I am optimistic, and I need to learn more. Great, great. No, we, let's um, let's jump right to uh, how we can learn more, uh, and let's leave let's leave sort of the the the, the high level discussions about how where where what the trends are and where the industry is going for the Hong Kong arbitration days for example yeah so Brian we, we've established that your practice does not have armies of paralegals and legal assistants and exactly. interns that's right so what what uh, what do you do if say a client sends you uh, 50 emails and with attachments and each are relevant to a, to a letter that you need to uh, send tomorrow, uh, the next day. <laughs> That's interesting you ask. And I'm not even <laughs> saying that for the purposes of radio talk. I, I had a recent case. It was a construction case. And we got basically a data room shared mm. with us with... I think it was five gigabytes of documents right. to be synthesized and analyzed, <laughs> and I, and none of, and some of them were not even OCR compatible, so I right. had couldn't even like search term. And basically, what we do is we go through it manually. Oh my goodness! Okay, okay. Well then, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, in I think in that case, I think in that case, it makes sense to to just quickly get a platform, uh, e-discovery platform, you know, set up. There are quite quite good good ones, competitive ones. So this this is this is this is big leaks. For for me, sometimes uh, I want to talk about if if the if the if there's like hundred one hundred emails or something that you need to do quickly without and and say the client cannot afford uh, a robust e-discovery system. What what do you do then? Do you do you you, you probably presumably you go through it manually? Yeah. Oh my goodness! I uh, uh, <laughs> do you feel bad for me? I do, and um, uh, there's a you know how ChatGPT we we talked about how what it can't do at the moment. Yeah. So it can't you know find you specific sentences or or do a chronology from a specific text. Say you have. Uh, a mining law in in Tanzania, uh, and you wanna you wanna see if, if there's any mention about you know investment protection. It it can't do that, right? It can't go through a text and give you a list of 
uh, exhaustive list of uh, information from that text. Right. Oh, it'll give you that, but <laughs> very, uh, very hallucinatory one. Uh, <laughs> so what's the what's the answer? So what it can do actually is is that it can write you a code for another program to execute, and then that program would go through a through any text and give you what you asked for. What is this magic program? <laughs> so, have you heard about Python? The snake? Um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> the programming language is called Python, and I, I think I think ChatGPT can do all sorts of uh, programming languages. But just just to explain it simply, it if you ask if you prompt ChatGPT, can you write me a code which would say which would go through all these attachments, extract PDFs and name them uh, chronologically with the date first and then f from recipient to, uh, so from sender to recipient, um, in, it would name them in that format. No way. Wait, wait, wait. So <clears throat> I get 50 emails from a client. Yeah. And an attachment form. Yeah. And I asked ChatGPT, can you go through those? So that I, I, I don't have to open anything. They're gonna, it's going to be able to write a code that's yeah. going to go into each email, look at the sender, look, yeah. at, the, look at the recipient. Yeah. Yeah. And the date. Yeah. And then list them. Yeah, and save them. Or it will them. save them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. That, that's, um, but then <laughs> if you ask, if you ask for, for a Python, you have to specify Python code. Then it'll it'll say sure uh, here here it is and then it just um, probably you know you can disregard what it writes the code itself it'll be in a table so you just copy that and paste it to uh, Python that you download from it's a free download Python it's a free it's a free download you you probably have to have a fight with your IT uh, <laughs> first but uh, for those who succeed. Uh, the, the the rewards are sweet uh, in that that you just copy and paste it, uh, and then ask ChatGPT, okay, what what part of the code should I change so that I can choose the place where all these emails, all these attachments are saved, and it'll tell you, <laughs> it'll tell you, and in a highlighted in red. So <laughs> the only thing you have to do in uh, you know in your coding in at the start of your coding career is to change the directory the path directory and then just press enter and it'll execute the the command uh, the and code then with with python it i will ha have to upload all of the documents no right? so it'll okay in this in this in this example you'd have to direct it to your where your emails are saved so presumably we're talking about Windows um, Outlook, right? So your so your I don't need to upload anything. It no. will go through my computer. No, 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 no. And if say if for example your um, you know your PC would have the Outlook somehow protected, you would then have to probably um, drag and drop your emails. Save it locally. Yeah, locally. Right. So if, for example, I have in a construction case mm -hmm. and I have a hundred letters exchanged between the parties, I have them all saved in PDF in a, mm. in a folder on my desktop, and I want Python to identify 
any document that contains language relating to delay. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. So it it, it just goes through all the all the PDFs and it'll create a document. You'd have to uh, specify you. I want to create a uh, Notepad document which contains yeah. the names of the documents that contain uh, the oh my god delay or what you what you want. I think uh, okay. I have another question. Yeah. Now I'm just telling you all the things <laughs> that I've had struggled with and see if they could be simplified. <laughs> what if you get another party's submission mm. and you want to review a certain section quickly mm. in order to talk to your client and advise them? Can you can they pre- present a summary of any text? No. So that's 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 what ChatGPT does. That's the large okay. language models. That, um, Python is your programming language for for Windows tasks. For for okay. So what I use it, for example, if uh, <clears throat> now now we have a fancy software for it. But before we uh, had that, I would use py- uh, a code from ChatGPT, a Python code, to 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 insert exhibit numbers in like to swap the x in footnotes with exhibit numbers oh right so when you're like putting in your footnotes and you just yeah. put a placeholder yeah. x yeah for example or i would we you know some sometimes you have to ex- you have to exhibit uh, a foreign language document and you need a translation so i would mm-hmm. i would i'd have translations of I would get from our translation company, would save in Word, and then I would have the originals in PDFs. So I would write mm-hmm. a code, please uh, write me a code which would combine PDFs and their Word um, and Word files based on the similarity of their uh, titles, file names. Uh. And um, PDF first, uh, sorry, um, translation first, uh, Word document first, and PDF second, and it would just do it. <laughs> it would, uh, it would do it. Like before, I would have to ask um, our assistants to, uh, you know, open do each one manually. So then, in that case, to use your previous example, you would need to have the destination folder code address. Oh yeah. So um, yeah. your input when you. Your your input will always be only to uh, specify where you want these to be saved, when you want the mm-hmm. product to be saved. Well, I think I need to download Python to understand exactly what that platform looks like. It, it, it takes it takes uh, a few weeks to you know get get um, get used to um, get used to it and trials and errors. And the best way, but the best thing about ChatGPT and AI is that it it just you can you can copy the code and say is there a mistake or it, it's not working and it, it'll say oh maybe try this or say i can't seem to execute the the code what do i do and it will just hold your hand and right. <laughs> tell you yeah so if you're saying i can't find the documents yeah. that i've created the bundled with the translations where are they yeah. Without judging, without like, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's just, it's not a sassy yeah. Siri application. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I mean, that is um, amazing. Actually, I think I need to really dig, spend an afternoon and and get to learn that. Well, yeah, yeah. Please do, and let me know. Let me know how uh, how it goes because it's uh, it's the first step. Uh, it's the it's uh, it's overcoming the fear of you know when you when you get the code. 
uh, it just sound it just looks very daunting and say oh how but then you all you do is just copy and paste can it, what about hyperlinking yeah it can do it can do hyperlinking so you would what would the question be to chat gpt saying okay i have my word i have my word document submission and i have my bundle of exhibits yeah it'll it'll I, so um it's it's problem i actually i have i haven't succeeded in i know it can do it because it just said yeah sure here's the code when i asked it <laughs> uh, but i i could, couldn't make it work because um if you have it in footnotes there's mm-hmm. uh, it's a bit trickier i think for ah, i see so um for the if you and especially if you have it in pdf footnotes and uh, or, and in word footnotes if you have a draft so that's uh, that's a bit tricky, but it can definitely it can definitely do it. So just a few more stupid questions to chat to you. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I'm excited to try this yeah. out. Yeah, please do, and uh, give us an update next time. Uh, As you know, it, it. I mean, for anything, even when we were learning new programs on mm. computers we you do have to do trial and error and it does just take a little yeah. bit of time and i know a lot of people don't have time but imagine how much time you can save yeah when you uh actually figure it out i think we should have an arbitration station um seminar where you live show us sharing your screen on how to do it and it could be an educational material for everyone okay i need i need a, a few a few more months i think uh, but I'll, yeah i'll make uh, if i if i come across like a very useful um <clears throat> prompt i'll i'll definitely share it well this has been a good i like practical as as private practice lawyers instead of academics we uh, i like the practical side of things so thank you for imparting your wisdom oh my pleasure all right well with that thank you for this episode thanks to and uh, we miss joel and sadia we give them our best and uh we'll see you next time Thanks, Brian. See you next time.